Well, hello, people. Welcome back to the second part of our TED Talk. Yeah. We're, we're getting deeper into Teddy Roosevelt than, than we've ever been before. Deeper than any of his doctors probably ever got inside of him. Probably. <laughs> the man to the left of me, as always, he looks surprisingly good in pastels, a nice light yellow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. It's golf He's sweater. a lean, mean, Ed Gein-loving machine. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Nice. That is Professor Adam. I'm Professor Chris. Welcome, everybody. Class is in session. Um... Where did we last leave off? Teddy had just essentially fulfilled the worst nightmare of the Republican Party when McKinley bit the bullet, pun intended, and uh, launches Teddy into office as the 26th president of the United States. The boy president has been crowned. The The boy president, the youngest president at that time. So... I mean, yeah, I think we just go ahead and take off from there. I don't think we really need to go ahead and these people are chomping at the bit, I think, for more Teddy. Got to. Yeah, this is why you came back. All right. Well, we are getting back into Teddy again, everyone. We love those five-star reviews. We love it when you read, you review, you subscribe, you send us feedback, all that good stuff. Thank you for listening. We love you all. Now to the episode. How many times do we text each other during the week doing our research about, you know, the civilizations we've discussed or the individuals and talk about how they even got into the mindset to come up with some of the ideas that they had? It feels like most of them. Uh, I know that all of these people that we've talked about in our podcast haven't really been known to use psilocybin, but some sort of a psychedelic, something along those lines to help brighten a horizon, to help. I, I don't know, mend a peace deal. Like a version of smoking the peace pipe together. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that a lot of the people that we've talked about probably dabbled in mushrooms. Oh, without a doubt. And if you're looking to broaden your mental horizons or if you're an old vet to the game, we got a deal for you. We're friends over at mindmenmushrooms.com. Uh, but we're both product testers. Uh, we enjoy what they put out. You're a micro, I'm a macro. Yep. That's where we get the most out of it. Yeah, um, I really do enjoy their pre-portioned pills that you can get. They're capsules that you can either dump into a drink, anything like that, or if you're just on the regimented vitamin schedule. I'm the lemonade mix guy. I love to mix <laughs> that up, pour it over ice, add a little bit of sugar to it. I'm not going to go out and mow the yard, get crazy, but I might go out and get in the hammock for a while. Nice way to finish your day, for sure. Exactly. Well, what you guys can do if you're interested in this, go to mindmenmushrooms.com. Use the promo code HIGH, H-I-G-H, for 15% off their entire site. Mind Men Mushrooms. Microdoses. Major results. All right, so what does Teddy do when he, I mean, you would imagine, like, he's in a precarious place. He, he's not supposed to be in the presidency. He's probably going to be walking on eggshells for a while, right? 
Yeah, you probably don't want to try and alienate the entire southern half of the country that you fought a war against fairly recently. Mm-hmm. But Teddy doesn't always do things in normal, traditional ways, as we've learned from the whole first episode. Uh, one of the first actions that he did as president was he invited my second favorite Booker T, uh, Booker T. Washington, to dinner at the White House. This is a pretty fucking big deal. Booker T. Washington was probably the most influential uh, African-American black man in the United States. Part of the other half of the Harlem Heat tag team. Yeah. Yeah. Him and there was Stevie Ray Washington, too. We didn't hear much about Stevie Ray after they broke up. Uh, But not odd for him to be meeting with an African-American gentleman. Um, They vote, too, I think, at this point. Yes? No? Yeah? You keep talking, I'll look it up. Yeah, got to be voting at this point. Uh, He's got people that he can sway. He can push the black vote to the Republican side. Uh, The non-traditional part of this was he invited him to the White House and he invited him to dinner. Dinner is not really like a professional setting. Dinner is more of like a friendly social type deal. So when word gets out that Booker T shows up to the White House for dinner. All the way back in 1869. God damn, we finally did something right. Mm -hmm. Well, it should have been. 1619, but... <laughs> yeah, there shouldn't have been that whole slavery thing. <laughs> Either way, yeah. Uh, but once this hits the news, it sort of shocks this racist, white, Democrat vote that didn't think that this should be something that's going on. The segregation, Jim Crow was still very heavy down in the South at this point, so to see news of the white president sitting with a black man at his dinner table in the White House wasn't really a great thing for, a great look for the president to start out with. So, I don't know if you heard this, did you hear the quote that I was a Southern politician made after the dinner? I think he said something to the effect of, um, this is going to set back white supremacy. We're going to have to perform a thousand lynchings to try to equal this out. I did hear that, and I was pretty shocked that there were that many N-words in there. I figured there'd be more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, not a great look. Um, well, great look for Teddy, but not a good look as far as the South was concerned. Yeah, as far as progressive in the nation, that's huge. Yeah. That's something that nobody had ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So progressives are immediately going to be drawn to Teddy and like him. Uh, he said that he would extend the offer a second time when he was asked about it. He never extended the offer a second time. Instead, they just ended up meeting back with each other at their normal meeting times that weren't ever published in the news. Uh, so Booker didn't get to come back over for dinner at the White House again. Kind of a bummer that he didn't push the issue. But at the same time, he's a fucking politician. You have to talk out of both sides of your mouth when you're a politician. There was no point in time in history that a politician was just 100% honest. Yeah, and again, this is a discussion essentially about all of Teddy. We're not just going to gloss over it. There's a lot of positive stuff that he did, way more than the negative stuff as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. But one of the things that he did is there were certain times when – as was kind of the custom of the day and everything like that, there was still some pretty blatant racism just everywhere. Um, But yeah, so people kind of viewed the whole Booker T. Washington thing at dinner to be like, well, was it just a token act? Was it just something for publicity or anything like that? We're never going to know, but essentially it's just, it's one of those things that essentially shook up the, the established order and was, it was a huge deal at the time. Yeah. He had also done a few other things, uh, in his presidency at the beginning. And I think after he was reelected, spoiler alert there, 
But uh, he gave a lot of the lower positions in the presidency to African-Americans, which... Like was, the administration. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty unheard of. And granted, they were lower-level positions where they weren't ever going to get a lot of fame and notoriety, mm-hmm. but he was giving jobs out to minorities. Well, black people, I'm not sure if it was other minorities, but we didn't learn that much about it. <laughs> so one of the things he did, too, as president that no one had really done at that point is he was willing to essentially use the powers of the government to basically challenge private businesses Hell on yeah. stuff for, like, regulations, um, fulfillment of certain trusts and lawsuits that were being put against them and everything. And he was basically what was known as the trust buster by breaking up like industry monopolies, basically using this thing called the Sherman Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Now, I I could lie to you right now, and I could tell you that I knew who Sherman was and what happened in 1890 to cause this antitrust act, but I'm going to leave that to a separate episode. Well, and the thing is, is this is like, oh, well, that doesn't seem very interesting. Yeah, he was fighting against industry and stuff like that. The reason that's such a big deal is this is still in a time in America, well, fuck, just like it is now, where there's fucking (laughs) lobbyists and there's money behind all this stuff. So basically for a president to go after, it's it's biting the hand that feeds in, in their opinions. But he's just like, I got my own money. Fuck it. This is what I'm doing. This is, you know. I'm, I'm, he was fighting for the people. That was the biggest thing is he was essentially like a representative. He's like, if I'm going to be in this role, this role was created essentially to stand up for the people. And that's what I'm going to fucking do. He's well, like, I'm not be hope. I'm not behooven to these fucking industries or anything like that. And it's also smart in the sense that if you're really thinking about it, yeah, they do have a lot of money and a lot of power, but they are, their votes, they don't control as many votes as the public does. There's a lot more of these people that are just working to survive of the common people than they are of these fucking industry heads. Yeah. And uh, essentially it's kind of what we see now where there's the concern for the Amazons and the Walmarts to push out the, the little people and not, well, sometimes actual little people, but the United States antitrust law that was passed in 1890 was passed by Senator John Sherman. And essentially it just wanted the rule of free competition among those engaged in commerce. So these mom and pop, these small oil companies that are selling to big oil companies that are turning into the monopolies, then the monopolies can start to manipulate the prices. I like how you said small oil companies. I just see, like, a mom and pop out with one Derek. Yeah. Like, you've seen fucking movies, and they're like, well, yeah, we pump the oil up, and we sell it. And... Somebody rolls up with the check and just buys their oil and throws it in the back mm-hmm. of their horse-drawn carriage and gets out of there. Yeah. And then a guy like J.P. Morgan rolls into town, and he's like, hey, can I buy up all your land? If one oil Derek is producing this much, I bet 50 oil Derek's would produce that much more. Yeah. And they would cut out the small businesses, but not only that, they could also control the labor forces for these larger businesses. They can manipulate prices, which then affect the poorer people that have to buy these resources from them. So Teddy using this antitrust act to be able to push in for the common man and start to regulate that. I know regulation is kind of a scary word in our country for some reason, but this is back at a time where regulation was scant. There wasn't a whole lot of regulation going on. It was the wild west. As far as like corporations and laws and things like that, the corporations had to be beholden to. It was the first time for a lot of shit too, which is crazy. Like people are like, Oh, 
like this is the first time like someone is trying to create a monopoly or has been powerful enough to go ahead and do this. It used to be, which is weird, there used to be monopolies all the time when you would have one general store in like uh-huh. a small town. That would be the only place to get anything. So stuff started out as monopolies, not saying that they're good or anything like that. But it it was just going so against the grain of what other presidents had done. And they said one thing with Teddy Roosevelt is that he one of his biggest inspirations in his life was Lincoln. He looked essentially, and I think that comes from his father and being, you know, staunchly on the side of the union, everything like that. But he looked at what kind of Lincoln stood for and tried to emulate it a lot. And basically being just like a man of the people was, was his sole goal. And he wanted to lift up. He wanted to continue, like you say, his father's legacy in being able to lift up this poor class. He wanted this square deal to actually have legs. Mm-hmm. Um, so Teddy brought 44 antitrust lawsuits that broke up the largest railroad monopoly and the largest oil company in the United States. I think they said that the three presidents previous to him had used this antitrust act 19 times, and he himself used it 44 times. Like, men likes to get shut down. Yeah. Um, and he also created the Department of Commerce and Labor, which is going to be able to help out the workers and be able to control... It's representation for the workers yeah, is basically uh, what it is. Exactly. The department to oversee the the wellness, essentially, of, of workers. Yeah. And then he also was able to create... This took a little bit more pushing from him. And we'll talk about how he uses the media more and more. But he was able to get something called the Bureau of Corporations passed that would be able to police future trusts to see kind of like, hey, we're getting a little too close to a monopoly here. Let's back off. Basically like, something to prevent it from happening, not not letting it get to the point. Yeah. yeah. And one of the ways that he was so brilliant and so smart and so almost futuristic to what we see presidents now he loved to use the media to get shit done because mm-hmm. he knew that if he could get the news to the people of what was actually going on, if his position was to help the people out, it was advantageous to let them know what was going on. It was the voice of the public. It was public opinion. He uses this perfectly in uh, 1962. He takes on J.P. Morgan. 1862. Oh, sorry. Er- 18, ni- 1862. What? Oh, sorry. 1902. There we go. I'm, I'm looking <laughs> cockhead at this board. So May 1902, he basically takes on his dad's old friend, basically, friend of the family, J.P. Morgan, during this coal miner strike. Now, the fucking world ran on coal at this point. All the battleships, everything ran on coal. Coal factories, all that kind of stuff. So basically, when there was a coal miner strike, you had a lot of people that were employed by the coal industry. And basically, he stepped in to resolve the labor dispute. And one of the ways that he did that is he basically, you know, you have the negotiations going on between like the leaders of the coal miners association, whatever they were. And then also like JP Morgan Roosevelt's like, Hey, let's get you guys in a fucking room. Let me mediate this shit. I, I imagine it like the scene off of wedding crashers. Like, why don't you just kiss my left nut? <laughs> I imagine it kind of like that. And you got fucking Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn and it's Teddy in there trying to, to, to hash this thing out. Needing See, you, wanting you, taking, taking you. you. Don't you want to get inside chastity without anyone finding out? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> so he basically, during this meeting, he's like, hey, do you guys mind if I have like a stenographer in here just so, like in case, you know, I can review the notes, find out kind of what's going on. They're like, yeah, 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 no problem. And during this meeting, while there was a stenographer there, 
basically made J.P. Morgan look really bad because essentially the coal miners were willing to come to the table and offer certain things, very reasonable things. And J.P. Morgan was like, nope, fuck you guys, and just stonewalled them. Well, what ended up happening is Teddy took these stenographer notes, and because there wasn't any type of prevention or law preventing him from sharing this, he basically gave them to the press and had them run them like the next day in the papers and it instantly fucking turned public opinion so far against J.P. Morgan that he was able to settle the labor dispute. Well, the other very key tool that he used, too, was, like you said, the world ran on coal. We were coming up on wintertime. Everybody had coal stoves. Something needed to be done. So one of the tools that he used was kind of bending the rules of the Constitution to declare a state of emergency so the government could come in and take it over, take over the coal mines. Oh, that's right. And turn them into government workers. So he kind of told JP, he's like, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. You can come to the table and you can start negotiating with these guys, or I can go ahead and have the federal government take over your coal mining operation, turn them into governmental employees, give them the benefits that they're hoping for, and we're just going to go ahead and cut you out. This, this reminds me... So many times, this is the most apt description of how he handles things. It was prior to this, I think, when he was building up the Navy back in his assistant secretary days, mm-hmm. when he was being asked essentially about like how he handled things, it was to speak softly and carry a big stick. This is exactly what that is. He's basically going up to J.P. Morgan and being like, I'm going to tell this to you where only you can hear it. But then that fucking stick sitting behind him is like, I can just fuck, I just took this shit. To make sure that these people are all taken care of. Yeah. Now, you can fucking come to the table and we can get some fair shit worked out. And no one has to know about this. So what do you do? It can go one of two ways. He didn't come up with the term. He just used it and it got popularized with him. I think it's like a, a West African proverb or something like that nice. that he got it from. Which I'm sure he got it from travels all over mm-hmm. the country to see how other He's places... Like, oh, that's fucking good. Yeah. That. Nobody in America has heard this before, mm-hmm. so I'm definitely going to use it. it. It literally... The, it wasn't even a proverb. It was just something he heard like he's out on safari and the guide <sighs> literally is like... He's like, how do you always survive out here? Like When you have to stay the night out here, he's like, you have to walk... Speak softly. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was, was it speak softly? Oh, yeah. Speak he's softly. Like, you have to speak softly. And then reach out and he's like, and carry a big stick. And it was literally <laughs> a big stick in case the animals came up. And he's like, oh, that's fucking good. That makes sense. Uh-huh. I get it. I'm going to use that for the rest of my life. Uh, and his big stick was being able to have the federal government to leverage these big deals that he had going on. Not to say that that's the best use of the uh, Constitution, but he was able to differentiate how to use it to his advantage, but also use it to the advantage of the people. He said he was inspired by Lincoln for that. Yeah. Because Lincoln had to essentially stretch the Constitution in order to save the Union. Teddy was like, like the, he was the law guy and everything. But he looked at that and he's like, as long as I'm not breaking the law, he's like, I can do this because it is for like the good of the country, the good of the Union. It makes a, a ton of sense, and it just shows kind of his acumen to be the leader that he was. Um, he was put into power by a gunshot the first time. It was really, really important when it came time for his second election to be able to get the votes of the people, to know that he was doing a good job because people wanted to vote for him because he was so popular. Um 
he he wanted that i guess acceptance from the electorate to say we think you're doing a great job that you deserve this and the 1904 election he fucking kills it yeah it's the ultimate performance review it's saying i got into this and you guys maybe didn't know what you were getting but now that it's been all me and the stuff getting done your guys's vote is going to determine if i'm doing the right thing and if it's solely on me that I got elected solely on what I've been doing. And the people fucking spoke. Yeah. He, at at that point in time, it was, I think the largest victory. They said he garnered 56% of the vote. He got 336 of the 476 electoral college votes. Just basically blew this guy named Alton Brooks Parker that he was running against out of the water. Wasn't even close. Oh shit. Uh, we forgot to mention, uh, this we'll just cover kind of shortly because we did a whole episode on this. Listen to the Panama Canal episode. Um, it's an earlier one, but I feel like it was pretty good. Oh, yeah. So 1901. Um, yeah, go back, listen to the Panama Canal episode so we're not getting too far into it. Basically, France tried it first. Teddy had his eyes set on. He's like, well, we need a way. Because, again, he's a naval power guy. Yep. He's like, we need a way, essentially, to get our Navy to the West Coast much faster or to get ships back. And so he heard about the French doing this and he was able to, through some dealings, basically get an area of Panama in which to go ahead and finish this canal. And it, he was out of the presidency when it was finished, but there's like a famous picture of him <laughs> down there in like a white outfit, like white jungle outfit. Like you would see like driving a steam shovel. Yeah. Like digging. It. Yeah. Uh, not to go too deep into that. Just kind of the Cliff Notes version of it. Uh, he approached Columbia, said we would like to build this canal here. They're, they had an agreement. Columbia took it back to their group of representatives. They're like, fuck no. Columbia this is, controlled Panama. Yep, Columbia controlled Panama. Um, they took it back to the, I guess, their legislature. It was like, hey, America wants to buy this from us. They want to build this canal. They're going to pay us X amount of money. They're like, no, this is the biggest thing that we have. That's why the French are over here trying to do it to too. To the Panama episode. Yeah. I like that episode. It was. It was good. So the U.S. may or may not have helped Panama gain Stage their... coup. A yeah. revolutionary coup. <laughs> and then they were like, your first order of business, Panama, is they're like, we give this area to the United States. And they said it was, it was within hours. And then a very obvious, like, <laughs> sideways turned cartoonish wink. It's like... Thanks. Thanks, Panama. We'll be the first to recognize you as a like sovereign nation. But Teddy started the probably busiest shipping lane in the entire world. Oh, the amount of money it makes per day. I can't remember the details of that episode. Go back and listen to it. It's it's insane. Just yeah. the whole concept to even be like, yeah, we're just going to cut this thing through a continent. So basically, yeah, Teddy is responsible also for the United States constructing the Panama Canal. So thanks, Ted. I, we say that so casually, like, but, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. To be able to create something like that. And that's like not his crowning achievement. So another cool thing that Teddy did while he was in office is he read this book. I can't remember what it was called, but it was basically kind of a sensationalized book written by this author that had snuck into a bunch of like the meat industry and meat processing places and taken pictures or not taken pictures, but written about it. And there was talk like, no, of course, lobbyists and meat industry are going to be like, this is sensationalized and everything like that. Teddy being the reader that he is actually reads this book 
and decides to look into this himself and through a bunch of like inspections, not him personally, but um, people that work for him, was able to determine that the meat industry was doing even worse shit than was actually in this book. The like, Jungle by Upton Sinclair. There you go. And so, like, talking about, like, grabbing bad meat and mixing it with shit and everything like that, there was no regulation of this. So he ends up passing the Meat Inspection Act of 1906 and then the Pure Food and Drug Act. Well, wait, food and drug? Doesn't that sound like maybe an administration that we have today? Could be. The motherfucker started the FDA. That's right. This is my favorite thing that Teddy did because it's something that I think we've slacked on. Our food standards are much, much worse than they are nationwide or worldwide. Oh yeah. Uh, but when he did this, that's why I only eat butcher box. Butcher box sends you pre No, first one's free butcher box. Yeah, next one's going to cost you. Hey, send us some of your shit. But Upton Sinclair was like you say, he was a muckraker. He went into these places, these meatpacking places, to see what was wrong. Is that what they called them, muckrakers? Yeah. Shit stirs. Same thing, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, you, you rake the muck, you stir the shit. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but after Teddy read the book, he wanted to get a hold of Upton Sinclair to be like, did all this shit really go on in these meatpacking plants, or did you sensationalize it? Upton comes and meets with him. He's like, it was worse than I said. So Teddy sends investigative journalists in to check these meatpacking plants. Uh, they found areas where the sausage was being made underground by women, and they had no windows and no natural light that these people were working in. And the gra- I prefer my sausages, too. I don't eat sausages unless those are the exact circumstances <laughs> in which they were made. Well, the other thing that they found... You can't expose good sausage to sunlight, Adam. Everyone knows that. No, they had another issue, though, and that was the exposure to rats to the sausage. Mm. So what do you do when you have rats crawling around on the sausage floor? You poison bread, and then you throw that bread onto the sausage floor, and then the rats eat the bread, and the rats die. Well, sometimes those rats and the poisoned bread were ending up going into the grinder to make the sausage that was then being distributed out and making many, many people sick. So... With this um, Food and Drug Act that he passed, it created a system to where they actually had to label things correctly, and any sort of preservatives that they would use that would cause sickness in people, that they just went by the preservative name, Mm -hmm. not like what could happen when you have too much of it. You had to be honest in all the labels that you put out. Any kind of meat that you ground or any kind of steaks that you had had to be clearly labeled correctly and where the actual plant was that it came from. So if there was something wrong, there would be a way to... Yeah. So this was something for the country that was only beneficial and something that really needed to happen because there was some gross shit that was going into the food. And he ain't done yet. Next, he establishes the U.S. Forest Service in 1906 and the Antiquities Act, basically establishing national monuments, Grand Canyon being one of them, um, forests, forests, or forest reserves. I mean, if you really think about it, it's so weird to think that like someone at some point was just like, Hey, you know what we should do? We should just basically take a bunch of these areas and make sure no one can fuck with them ever. How about Mm -hmm. that? And at that time they got nothing but space. So they're like, sure, Teddy, sure, Teddy, you can go ahead and get on that. And he's like, I'm going to make this one a national forest. So no one can ever touch it. It's a national monument. They're like, all right, Teddy, can you imagine when people started moving in and like space started kind of getting more cramped? They were like, fuck, we can't touch this forest. People can't live here. 
yeah, we'd like to mow down this section of these trees so we can build a house. He's like, no, dude, that's that's protected forest. That's mm, protected land. Nope, not no more. This was a, a really big step forward for the nation and being able to preserve nature because now looking at it, we have an issue with these very important parts of our country that are being used because somehow there's a correlation between where there's a bunch of trees and then like where oil is <laughs> or where natural resources mm-hmm. are, where gases are, anything like that. I think Teddy in mountainous areas. Yeah. Teddy and would, they're untouched areas. So mm-hmm. the stuff was always there, but we've just used up all the other shit elsewhere that now we're up and yeah. I think Teddy would roll over in his grave when he saw all of the public lands that have been, changed over into private lands and sold to different private places. The issue that happened when he did all this stuff, because he did so much shit. So he used um, executive orders to create over 150 million acres of reserved forestry land. Um, He also, using those acts, when he created the National Monuments, the Grand Canyon was Mm -hmm. a national monument that couldn't be touched at that point. I think that was a bad example. Because what the fuck is someone going to do to... I mean, they could... Yeah, hold on a second. I just thought of something. I was like, you couldn't fucking... You couldn't fuck up the Grand Canyon. It's not like you could deforest it or anything like that. Can you imagine if that was not designated a national monument? The property values of houses overlooking the Grand Canyon would be... Yeah. Well, not to mention oil exploration, natural gas exploration, any sort of digging that's going on down there. And maybe at that point in time in the world, he's like, shit, if somebody digs in the Grand Canyon, are we going to hit like China? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like how far down can they go before we get there? But the downside to what he did was a lot of these lands, these preserves and reserves that he had created for animals. Weren't really his to give away. Nope. Yeah. It, there were native land. There were native peoples that lived on these lands. There were Native Americans that had lived in fostered these lands for hundreds of years before and it's not like hey guess what we preserved this land for you see you guys are good it was like so we've preserved this land we're gonna need you to leave yep yeah thanks for what you've done mm-hmm. we'll go ahead and it's take so it beautiful here. we want to keep it around forever just not with you here and that's he had this different relationship with native americans that I I just don't really understand. I, I get it. your sigh because you're like, I want to like this guy so much, and I want to actually do a study on a guy that didn't have bad shit. That you're just like, why, man, why you're fucking up your image. Um, the thing with him, he had experiences essentially with Native Americans being in the Dakotas and everything like that. But he had this weird, like almost twenty percent respect, eighty percent dislike. And he said something like, "They're not all." He's like, "Not all of them are bad." And in your head, you'd be like, oh, like, okay, so you've met some good ones. You missed a better one. And he's like, well, nine tens of them are. Nine and, out of ten of them are. And I'm not going to look too much into the tenth. And it was just kind of like, oh, so you're a dick. Yeah. And it's so shocking to me because just like we talked about with the Rough Riders in the last episode, there were Native Americans that came over and fought with the Rough Riders. You'd think that seeing that, he would oh. garner some sort of respect. Yeah, but, I mean, to what degree? Uh, this is also the same guy back to our Geronimo episode that paraded Geronimo and three other chiefs during this 1904 election celebration oh, down right. down the street in D.C. Forgot it made them that. dress up in full regalia, and then Geronimo goes and says, hey, will you set me and my people free? He's like, eh, not you. Uh, I'll look into setting everybody else mm-hmm. free, though. 
So his relationship with Native Americans is just so odd, and it gets so much weirder towards the end of this story when he heads down to South America. But, yeah, it, it was a great way to preserve the country's beauty and to really help out the environment. Way to slap the other piece of bread on that shit. Had to. Had to. Well, then the guy wins the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating the treaty treaty, um, of the Russo-Japanese War, correct? Yep, the Treaty of Portsmouth. Uh, (laughs) Do you think at this point he was like, listen, I think I can handle this. Like, what the fuck makes you qualified? He's like, I was able to actually fuck over J.P. Morgan. <laughs> so if you let me talk to these guys, I'm sure I can resolve this situation. They're like, well, fuck, okay, give it a try. Yeah. I, have you guys ever heard of the Stockman's Association of North Dakota? Mm-hmm. I, I did that. Billings that was County me. Deputy Sheriff right here. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the Treaty of Portsmouth ended the Russo-Japanese War, so Teddy got the Nobel Prize for helping to do that. The guy ended a fucking war between the Russians and the Japanese, and he played it really well. I think the Japanese, weren't they, like, kicking the Russians' ass? They had taken out their entire Navy or something, and, like, we mentioned that, I think, in the Samurai episode when we were talking about... I believe so. I think we, yeah, we talked a little bit about the back and forth. The issue, I think, was that Japan was running out of money and Russia was running out of people. And they Russia needed... never runs out of people. Well, They're running out of ships. Yeah, maybe that was it. They don't run out of people. But they, I, to win a peace prize for a guy that accidentally, intentionally started the Spanish-American War, that seems a little bit odd. It's almost like he knew that... accidentally, intentionally accidentally intentionally for sure Mm -hmm. but i think that it sort of shows a little bit of like when he's the leader of everybody he wants to be safe and wants to be peaceful when he's just a lower level guy that the heat's probably not going to come down too hard on he's willing to risk it i think what it is is it's it's kind of like the driving phenomenon with your girlfriend or your wife if you're going someplace together regardless if you're taking her primary vehicle you're driving because if you're sitting in the path, you have to be the one in control. So if he's like, well, if I'm in the one in control, then everything's going to be cool. I won't crash the car. Exactly. Um, one thing he also met, tying it back to like, what, two or three weeks ago? I don't know if it was during his second term. He met with Franz Joseph. Not yeah. The, uh, the current ruler uh-huh. of Austria-Hungary at that time, part of World War I. Yeah, not, I don't think he met with Franz Ferdinand. Um, but, or... Well, it was Franz Joseph Ferdinand was the guy that was leading it, and then just regular Franz Ferdinand Jr. or whatever. Uh, the guy that was leading it was Franz Joseph, his uncle. Franz Joseph. That's how they distinguished him. They would just use his first name and middle name. That's I didn't think Franz it was Joseph. Ferdinand, too. Maybe okay. it was. Anyway, so yeah, he ended up meeting him as well. Uh, also, first president to fly. Crazy. The Wright brothers. Him and the Wright brothers hooked up for a collaboration. In St. Louis or something. Yeah, he was the first president to fly. I That's, think this he was only in the air for like 30 seconds or some just insanely funny number. It but yeah, first guy to fly. Count. You gotta get be up at speed enough. Do you, you can still 30 seconds, you can crash and die. Yeah. Yeah, what comes up is gonna come down if you don't know how to land. Well, essentially, how do you keep the greatest hits coming? Well, after you win the 1904 election, the people have spoken. You you would think you would get up there and you would just be like, hey, let's get this party started. Instead, you get up there and he's like, just to let you know, I'm not running again after this. And everyone's like, hey, what? <laughs> they said it was one of the most just like uncharacteristic and also unnecessary things to like do. 
There was like a phonograph scratch as soon as he said it. But it was, he announced it essentially to where it was to the public and then somehow felt because he had made that bargain with the public. Like at some point, do you think he could like come back in three years and be like, listen, I have this plan. Three years in, I'm going to come back and say, listen, everybody, I know what I said. I was so excited to run excited about the next four years, but we still have work to do. How would you like me to run again and then see what the fuck was happening? But no, he was just like, oh, I said I was going to not run, and so I guess I'm not going to run. He had a lot of honor. He was a very honorable man for a lot of the his, stuff that His he did. word was his bond, I guess, is one of those. It, and that had to be like a Western type thing. Could have been. I don't need a fucking receipt for this deed to land. Yeah, this is where that sponge aspect that I was talking to. Everywhere that he goes, he picks up a little personality trait from the areas. And mm-hmm. for the most part, besides the Native Americans and the way that he uh, handled some relations with a troop of African Americans down in Texas... Um, he, he seemed like a fairly honorable guy. That's, uh, it, it's tough to bring up because it's kind of confusing again with his relations with African-Americans. It was in, oh shit. What was the town that they were in, in Texas? Brownsville? Maybe. Uh, well, what went down there? I think it, uh, I don't know if it was Brownsville, and I don't want to say if it was because I don't want to fuck well, you him have up. Said it is uh, a town in Texas. Uh, yeah, a town in Texas had a riot. There was an all black. Yes, I know what you're talking about. I'm not sure if it was Brownsville, but it was where the. So you had an all black regiment, and of course, in that time, it was kind of you know even up to the Tuskegee Airmen, white officers in in command of them and everything. There was a riot in which some people got shot. I believe. Yep. And basically, I don't know if there was a lot of damage caused or looting or something like that, but all the blame fell fell squarely on this black regiment. And even the officers are like, hey, just so you guys know, when all this was going down, our guys were accounted for and at the barracks. And Roosevelt was still like, I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear I didn't hear you. Nope. I, I already said that it looked bad toward them. I already said that they were probably guilty. So he discharged every single one of them. Yep. In the face of proof, it was Brownsville. It was. Uh, Yeah, in the face of proof that this wasn't started by this black regiment, he just kind of didn't care at that point. It was like he was already pot committed to doing something about it and had to. And and I think that that's the whole thing with him being so committed to what he is going to do. I don't think anything either on the good side or the bad side, anyone was going to talk him into doing anything different. I think he was set on that. Just like with, you know, not comparing the two, but like on the positive side, the national parks, he was going to fucking go ahead and do that. That was something he wanted to do. On the negative side, you know, discharging these guys for stuff that they didn't do, he was set to, no one was going to convince him otherwise whether it was going to be a, a good or a bad decision. So yeah, he has these kind of weird things that happen along his presidency, which kind of bad. Hmm. You can just say bad things. Yeah, I, they were. They definitely didn't shine a good light on him, but for the most part, he was very good at what he did. And for him to give up reelection, I think kind of scared him once he realized what he said. But he was so caught up in the moment, and he really wanted to portray himself as somebody who doesn't want to be a ruler or a dictator or anything like that, but somebody who wanted to go in, affect change, and then he could move on. Well, and someone might be asking themselves right now, well, what do you guys mean? He served as president after McKinley for three years. Then he won the other election. How's he running again? 
This was at a time in which there weren't term limits for a president. That wasn't set until, I think, FDR, when he oversaw the Great Depression and then went in right into World War II. And so they were like, nope, you're staying in office. We need constant leadership. And after that, that's when the term limits, I think, were set to the two because he served for four terms. Yeah, and it was... Who was the only guy to do three? It was the guy that took over after Kennedy got shot. After who? No. It was prior to that. It had to have been. I thought there was... Oh, fuck. This is going to wreck my brain. And there's probably people listening. They're like, yeah, we Google it, it later, bud. Yeah, it'll All come. Right. It'll so come. he ends up choosing Secretary of War William Howard Taft to basically be his successor in the 1908 election. And he, for all intents and purposes, him and Taft got along great. He thought he was a great guy. That's why he picked him as his successor. And he was the Secretary of War. And he was, of course. <laughs> it's not like he's going to be like, well, my VP should probably do it. He's like, nope, it's the war, dude. And so, yeah, he was the guy that was pumping him up. And basically, if you had Roosevelt's endorsement at this point, you were going to be the candidate that they were going to back. Um, turns out he really wasn't reading the signals that well because I think Taft was kind of pay, playing him some lip service as far as his policies because he was under the expectation that Taft was just going to continue with his platform yeah, and just continue was, to get the things done that he had set in motion. He groomed him to just follow orders. And then as soon as Taft was in, Taft was like, well, actually, we're going to be doing something different. And so this was like a betrayal between him and Taft that actually like completely destroyed their friendship and basically turned them into adversaries. Taft knew that it was big shit. He invited Teddy to stay at the White House, and Teddy just didn't return his phone call. Yeah. He he had had enough of it. He didn't need to deal with Taft shit anymore. And he kind of got a little bit reinvigorated because in 1909, after he leaves office and Taft wins, uh, he took a little expedition to Africa along with his son Kermit. <laughs> I think this is him doing something after something that is making him unhappy. I think that he wanted to run again. He wasn't going to do it because he said he wasn't going to do it. I think he was probably like, fuck, I don't want to be here anymore. Where haven't I been? Let's go to Africa. Or where can I go back to? Let's go to Africa. And he's like, kids, we're, we're heading to Africa. We don't want to go to Africa. Talk. Kermit's like, I'll, I guess I'll go. Or he's like, Kermit, you're coming with me. He's like, God <laughs> damn it. Kermit, you're the best shot of all the kids. Come mm-hmm. on with me. Well, I, this is a coping mechanism. This is the exact same shit. This is going to Maine. This is going to the Dakotas. He's trying to fill whatever sized hole in him by shooting very large sized holes. I, in I was going to ask you, do you think we didn't d- touch on it during the Maine trip last episode or during the Dakotas? But I mean, he the assumption is he was killing a lot of stuff while he was out there, right? Both I, in Maine and in the Badlands. I think he accidentally like there was a fight between him and a, or I guess he was hunting a bear in Maine, I think is where it was. Mm-hmm. And they said that it was just dumb luck that the gun went off at the exact right time and hit the bear between the eyes. Cause if it hadn't happened in that order, Teddy would have been bear meat. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, during this little outing to Africa, they, and he's also going, I think, because he's still contributing to the museum of natural history. Yeah. They, they sent, researchers over there with him for this expedition. So they're, you know, collecting samples and everything like that. Well, Teddy's given him a lot of fucking samples because they kill or trap 11,400 animals. That's so many animals, 512 man. of them were big game animals. There were six white rhinos. 
six white rhinos. I mean, there was a lot of white rhinos back then, maybe. I don't think there's ever been a lot of white rhinos, buddy. <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a large abundance of white rhinos. Um, again, this is not a thing that we find positive, that I find positive about Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I understand that the Museum of Natural History was probably real stoked to see a bunch of animals that they hadn't seen before, but I don't think you need to kill over 11,000 animals. I think you can get your point across with less. Get what you need to get. So Teddy, it seems, was really upset about not being able to run for this election to take it out on this many animals. You know what side I fall on this debate here. Uh, hunting, I agree with. I feel like it's, it is very important now to control populations. Not the greatest thing ever as this far isn't, as... This is trophy hunting. It, it is. Not, you're eating 11,400 animals. Well, at the same time, again, I'm going to try to put a little bow on this. Shot a lot of things that were then sent back to the United States that there was no way in hell that any American would ever get to see in their lives. We do the same thing with zoos, which also are something that I love that depresses me. I'm not pro-zoo either. I'm not going to ever be able to see a tiger in the wild. That's just not something that I ever want to put on my bucket list. These animals are all dead. They are, but you're still seeing a stuffed taxidermied rendition of them that I think maybe taught... I don't think that I've seen a tiger move and I've seen a stuffed tiger, it's it's nowhere near. Like, you could see a stuffed tiger and just be like, oh, because it's not moving, maybe it's fake or something like that. But, like, yeah, I don't think you need to kill 11,000. Uh, okay, then it was a bonding experience with Kermit, because Kermit was a great shot, That's too. That's a lot of bonding. <laughs> well, they said that they would have competitions, and Kermit would, like, be able to keep up with his father as far as how many animals that they were shooting a day. This wasn't also just them. It was a whole team that they had gone with. That's what I'm saying. It was a murder a murder squad yeah, sent to yep. Africa. And uh, trapped or killed. So maybe they trapped him and released him? <laughs> I think trapped means trapped and then killed. Okay. All right, fine. It, one of them is just trapping and shooting it. The other is just shooting it without the trap. <laughs> well, after his little murder spree in Africa, he comes back. Like we talked about, he has that falling out with Taft and the, Republic- and the Republican National Convention. Um, so what do you do? If you're Teddy Roosevelt and you're still like, you know what? I've just killed a fuck ton of animals. I am fucking jazzed. I think I'm ready to get back into politics. Well, no one's going to take you. You just start your own party. Yeah, you you build from from one. And what do you call the party? Well, someone asked Teddy, Teddy, are you sure you want to do this? Teddy says, I feel as strong as a bull moose. So what do you call that party? You call that the bull moose party. I thought he said that he was strong like bull and hung like moose. No, he did not say that. That wasn't it? That was okay. not it. I thought it might have been like a North Dakota thing Maybe. that he had learned from the Native an Americans. Old yeah, an old Native American yeah. proverb, strong like bull, hung like moose. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, to me, it's kind of one of the more amazing things. Third party candidates here in America just don't get any love or any shine. Was this the first time when a third party candidate was an actual like legitimate like candidate? No, they, there had been other parties that had kind of come and gone before, but nobody had ever garnered the kind of attention that the bull moose party was because nobody had an ex president running the party. No one also named it something like the bull moose party. Yeah. We're the Republicans. We're the Democrats. We're the bull moose party. Like I, them, (laughs) I want to go with them. Well, uh, to think about the way that government was set up then, where it was just basically Democrats, Dixiecrats, Republicans, you had two sides. Yeah. So everybody that was a senator, everybody that was a House of Representative mm-hmm. member was going to be one of those two. 
Uh, just like we saw with the Nazi party in World War II in Germany, they had to build up seats in the Reichstag before they could then go after the main power source yeah. of the chancellery, the presidency, mm-hmm. all that stuff that Hitler got. Well, he was trying to do it where a third party would be president and then have to compete with the Democrats and then the more regressive Republicans because he was a progressive Republican, which sounds like a oh, weird Oh, yeah, because the Blue News combo. Party was definitely not going to take really any seats in Congress to give them any type of control. Yeah. It was basically going to be a split between the three groups, one running uh-huh. the executive, legislative. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So it's interesting to kind of see how that would have played out. Um, But the Bull Moose Party being this progressive Republican Party, this always blows me away when I say it, and I need to figure out the day that it actually happened, and maybe it makes me a bad man for not knowing it. Uh, Women still couldn't vote. So women's suffrage was something that the Republican Party, or this Bull Moose Party, had taken on as something that they wanted to do. And he would have a lot of women showing up to his rallies because he would be preaching about being able to get them the right to vote. 1920, so close. Yeah, oh, well, I, that's right, because it was FDR that pushed it through. Mm. So that that makes sense. Um, maybe it wasn't, because 1920 wouldn't have been him, would it? We'll find out later. Okay. So as a third-party candidate, he was taken on Taft and Woodrow Wilson, names people should be familiar with. Um at a like a campaign event in Milwaukee on August, October 14th, 1912. We're getting shades of McKinley here because uh, Teddy Roosevelt was shot in the chest by John Fleming. John Fleming Shrank. And this is like out of a fucking movie. Basically, the bullet did get through to his chest. It caused like a flesh wound enough to where it was bleeding. The bullet was slowed by his metal eyeglasses case and his 50-page speech. That's the scene where someone's like, I kept the diary you gave me, and like they survive in a fucking Wild West. Is that why he's carrying shit like that? He saw that happen once in the Badlands where a guy was saved because he was carrying something in his pocket, and he's like, I think I'll just start carrying a 50-page, 50-fucking-page speech. What's the movie where the guy has a prune that he got from like his father? And then he takes a bullet, and the bullet hits the prune. I don't know. Do you know any, does this ring any bells? Not one. He pulls the prune out, and he goes, the prune's seen better days? No. Uh, okay, maybe I don't. I, f- I, I want to like, say it was Problem Child. I feel like this is an exclusive feature in your head. As dumb as this sounds, Problem Child. I think it was Problem Child. Okay. I think it was Ted Healy that, that did it. But, uh, yeah, he, just that whole thought of, uh, the events that would have to be in order for his eyeglasses case and his 50 page speech to be folded over and put in the exact same pocket where the bullet hits. Like, aren't you off? Like you're, it seems like you're ja- like, I'm one of those people that I got to have some equality in like jacket pockets. If I'm yeah. carrying multiple oh, yeah. things, I can't have it sacked on one side. You're carrying your glasses case and a 50 page speech on one side of your jacket. This is ridiculous. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to get the fuck out of there. You were just, a, there was just an attempted assassination. Well, no. No, he refuses medical attention, basically takes the stage, and then delivers a 90-minute speech while bleeding. Uh, well, he even started the speech off by opening up his jacket, being like, I'm going to need everybody to be real quiet in here. I just got shot, and I need to give this speech. He opens up his jacket and shows everybody in the crowd his bloodstained shirt, and then goes right into it and just, just launches into it. 
Yeah. Uh, his woman in the back painting. Oh. <laughs> Well, what a way to get everybody's attention. You just got a bloody shirt on from getting shot. Uh, they said that his, I guess, his medical training from being a part of the Rough Riders had shown him, since he wasn't coughing up the blood, that it wasn't that fatal. Mm-hmm. I don't know how anything... Well, that's just how casually you said that that's like the litmus test. Be like, <laughs> you've been shot. Am I coughing up blood? Well, not that I can see. I'm good. Yeah, I think I, I'm I can good. go on. That's what I mean. If you get shot and it's that close to your lung and you just go for 90 minutes talking and breathing and doing all that. Here's the thing, too. Sorry when I said it was a flesh wound. It was bleeding. Sorry, he had that bullet. It actually went in and stayed in his body, remember? For the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. So sorry, I didn't mean, but so that's even more so. It went in just enough <laughs> into like the muscle and everything to stay in there. And he was still like, nah, daddy's got a speech to give got up there for 90 minutes now you would think that something like that that would definitely win you the presidency right i you would hope i i do know that uh taft was just uh, he was a lame duck at that point even before that um they did i think it was probably like primaries or something like that the only one that taft won out of all the republican primaries that they had done was his home country or his home state do you think this is a situation where, like, you just came from Teddy Roosevelt and now you get Taft? Do you think the country was just so used to having Teddy Roosevelt as that figure and everything that when they got Taft? It, it's like, you know, your girlfriend was previously dating someone with a bigger dick than you. <laughs> and then and you somehow found out about that and now you're with her. So you never think maybe she's still thinking about that. Maybe the country was like, we miss Teddy. It's an this, ego blow. This guy just isn't Teddy. I also think that there was a lot of, or a lot of progress under Teddy. And with the way that Taft had kind of slowed things down and was just trying to ride in that wake instead of continuing to progress the country, mm-hmm. I was like, well, we had a lot of movement from Teddy and now we're just kind of stagnant again. People are looking at it as a failure being like, what did you do? Like stuff just ground to a halt. Yeah. And then the guy that brought you so far enters the race as this bull moose party. And then on top of that, he gets shot and gives a speech. I think it was on the democratic side. They said that the bullet was the shot that won Teddy or the shot that killed the Democrats and the Republicans chances of winning the election. Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't quite go down that way. Uh, Roosevelt would put up pretty astounding numbers. The largest numbers that a third party, most amount of votes that a third party candidate has ever gotten. You got 27% of the vote, 4.1 million votes, and just did what the Republicans were so afraid of. They split the Republican vote between Taft and Roosevelt. And when it's a three person race, you don't need 50% to win. Taft ended up pulling out some shit. He got, uh, what was it, 23% of the vote, so 4% less than Roosevelt. 27 plus 23 is 50%. Trying to do math right now? <laughs> I, I, I think I got it. Except for the numbers don't match up because he got 27, uh, Taft got 23, and Wilson got 42% of the vote. So uh, that only seems like 92%. You can just say that Wilson secured the majority of the vote needed in the electoral votes. Okay, yeah. That works, too. Don't stress about the facts, baby. Uh, Electoral votes. Roosevelt ended up getting 88. Woodrow cleaned off the board with 435. Taft picked up a solid eight. (laughs) But still, again, he basically split the vote. Wasn't the result that he was hoping for. 
And so, you know, what do you do at this point? You lost the presidential race as a third party. He's probably not feeling great about it. So in true Teddy fashion, he's heading someplace. And let's take a little bathroom break, and then we're going to get into where he goes next. Yeah, we're headed to the Amazon. Well, hey there, all you sexy historians. How you guys doing? It is time for socials. Where can they find us on Instagram? If they want to uh, follow us, they can find us at Historically High Pod on Instagram. That goes the same for threads as well. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Ooh, tell them about Twitter. Historically high. That's historically H-I on Twitter. And if you want to email any of your comments or suggestions, where can they find us at, Adam? At historically high podcast at gmail.com. Gmail. All right. And back to the show. All right. Heading to the Amazon. Like, like Dominic Toretto's Fast and the Furious crew in every single movie, Teddy's heading to South America. Family. <laughs> he took his family. He took a, a family member. So what is a man who is getting to be about 55 at this point? Guess what? He still got the connection with the Natural History Museum. He had a very successful trip to Africa for specimens. So he tells uh-huh. him, hey why don't you let me go to South America? I'll do my thing down there where I just like get all of my depression and anger out by probably killing quite a few things. And while we're down there, we can collect you guys some specimens and do all that kind of stuff. So they're like, yeah, we'll fund you. Go ahead and do that. Once they get down there, all of a sudden they find a new goal and it's to find the headwaters of the Rio da Duvida, the river of doubt. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, this whole trip came about a lot like you were talking about. He hooked up at the Natural History Museum. He's like, I want to go do something. They go, okay, we're going to send I you need down. to go do something. Hey, you're going to go down this river in Brazil. Um, this is already mapped. It's already charted. Everything like that. Go down there. Uh, he actually takes almost everybody in the family. He takes his wife. Everybody takes uh, Kermit down there with him. They get down there, and the whole idea behind it was there was this gentleman that was named Father John Augustine Jam. I feel like Kermit gets the short straw. <laughs> I have a couple thoughts on this real quick. Do you think that at this point the Natural History Museum like saw that Teddy lost, and they were like, somebody figure out something that Teddy can fucking do? <laughs> so I was like, we haven't been to the Amazon yet. They're like, perfect. And next day, Teddy calls up. He's like, hey, what do you got? He's like, we got something for you, Teddy. And then Kermit's probably like, after all these things, after the Africa thing, Kermit's probably like, what? No, God damn it, he lost? Where are we fucking going this time? Well, Kermit was actually already down there. He was already working down there. He had a job with an American company that was working um, down in South America. I want to say it was the rubber industry, but I don't think that was it. It just sounds right. So Kermit was already down there. That's why uh, his wife came down was to see their son. And once they get down there, uh, the Brazilian consulate's like, hey, have you ever heard of Condito Rondon? Condito Rondon. Condito Rondon. Uh, he's just somebody that's what known that? as the South American Lewis and Clark. Okay. Um, Wait, oh, so shit. He- I forgot to go over Father John. So Father John's getting old. Uh, he's a Catholic priest, so he's probably taking a vow of celibacy. I don't know how the 
the kid trafficking work back in 1913. But Father Zom wants to go down. He wants to see something incredible in his life. Is Father John in South America, or is he from here? He's from here. Okay, so he's like, hey, I heard you guys are going to South America. They got really nice kids down there. Take me with you. <laughs> Could be. Okay. Yeah, probably it. Um, it was a trip that he thought that he would never get to go on. He ends up hooking up with the guy that set up Teddy Roosevelt to go down there. Once they get down there, fast forward to Candido Rondon. They said, we have this river that we call the... What? River of Doubt. Yeah, what's the Spanish translation? Rio da Duvida. Yeah, the Rio da Duvida. Um, we don't know where it ends up. We know where the headwaters are, but we need to see where it connects. So would you like to go cons- or explore this brand new area, this uncharted territory with Rondon? You can almost just, when you're describing that, you can see Teddy's <laughs> blood flow uh-huh. changing, challenging. To, he's like, what did you say? Unexplored? Dangerous? I'm in. Um, he had made some comment because his wife was worried, and that's why Kermit went with them because... She, his wife was like, hey, Kermit, keep an eye on your dad. She basically, yes. She was like, Kermit, you're fucking going. <laughs> uh, I guess Teddy had made mention of if uh, the Amazon needs me, I can leave my bones in South America or some goofy shit where he's like, I'm not afraid to die. It was essentially what he said was, I'm not afraid to die going on this trip. So they head off on this trip. Um, as far as the voyage goes, the issue is. What happened with Father John? Uh, Father John's coming. Okay. Father John comes on the trip with them. They have um, Rondon and all of these Native Americans that they just call Indians because I'm sure they look like the same Indians mm-hmm. that are up in America down there. They're like, oh, shit, they got you guys down here too. Cool. Um, as they're going along, the Brazilian consulate or whoever brought Rondon onto the trip was like, make sure to take care of the pale faces. These guys are all pretty important people and we don't want them to die. So second. Listen up, dude. Do not kill this gringo. Whatever you do, <laughs> do not let this gringo get killed. He is a very important man. And Incident international. Yeah, exactly. So it was like the second or third day in Rodone talks to his guys. He's like, hey, cutting rations. Um, these guys like to eat. Apparently, Teddy would get up every day and like go for a hike or go for a hunt. He was a very active guy. But when they were down there, Rondon's like, we have to make sure that these guys have a good time. You guys are eating less so they can eat more so we can keep these things going on this ration trip. Coming down, they knew where the headwaters were. They were up in the mountains. So you were going to be going downhill, which you don't know where rapids are because Mm -hmm. this is an uncharted body of water. You don't know how easy it is going to be to get back up. Because just because you find where the connection point is at the bottom of this river, you still have to go all the way back home. Well, here's the thing, too. You can have an idea... Of like, well, we know where the headwaters are. We know it empties somewhere in this region into the Amazon River. Got to be. Yeah. It was. But the river can literally just wind endlessly up uh-huh. and just in any and all directions. And a straight shot that might be 200 miles can be turned into a, oh, say, I don't know, like 625 mile long journey. It's pretty long. Yeah. It's pretty far away. Well, during this... now. Before I get into this, does Father John happen before or after the uh, canoe incident? Uh, is the canoe incident before they split up and they send the other explorers down the known river? Is that Father gonna... John before Teddy gets hurt? I don't think so. You think it's after? I think it's after. 
does Teddy lay into Father John about something? Because Teddy's not really in a super good condition after the incident. Yeah, oh yeah, he does. He sends okay. him home. All right, well, during the uh, trip, they hit some rapids. Teddy, as a fucking 55-year-old man, <laughs> jumps out to try to stop the canoes from fucking hitting into some rocks and ends up, like, hurting his leg. And it's not like a break or anything like that, but there's, like, an open wound. And guess what? You're in the middle of the fucking jungle. A jungle you've probably never been to before. What tends to happen if people come into some place and have an open wound and they've never been there before? Infection, gangrenous regions probably. A little bit of topical or tropical fever, um, kind of like malaria, which was coincidentally also worsened by that pesky bullet that he still had in his chest. It crushed Kermit too. Kermit kept getting sick over and over again from this malaria. Oh yeah, they both got malaria. And so it got to the point six weeks in where, and I'm not sure how far in he actually hurt himself, but by six weeks in on this journey, and again, this journey, they don't know how long it's going to take. They maybe have some type of general idea, plus or minus 500 miles. I don't fucking know. But maybe. like, they don't, this could be months and months. They're completely away from any and all civilization. They were even, like, finding, like, severed monkey heads and stuff from the natives, like, sending them out as warnings as they were traveling down river. So not exactly probably the – unless a severed monkey head is, like, a offering a piece. I, it doesn't <coughs> – wow. It doesn't strike me as one. I don't really know how endangered they were from the tribes because the area that they were working in, Radon had already explored before. And they said that one of the things that he had done... How did he explore it if it's all it's supposed to be uncharted? Well, like, explored the area and found natives. <coughs> but they, they had found the headwaters around there, so I'm assuming they probably ran into the natives around there. That's true. But, but one of the things that they would do that Rodone always preached was whenever you ran into natives, the thing that you would do is you would leave them gifts, and then you would leave. Maybe that's what the severed monkey heads were. They yeah, were maybe, yeah maybe it was the exact same thing. Like, really yummy monkey head. Glad you're back. Mm-hmm. Best part of the monkey right here. Well, by six weeks in, they were having to be attended to day and night, or Teddy was by the, like, camp physician, whoever it was. Basically, he couldn't walk because of the leg, had a 103-degree fever, and at certain points, or at one point, he was just like, listen, I'm slowing everybody down at this point. Already made peace with the fact that maybe my bones were going to be somewhere left on this river. Leave me a bunch of morphine. I'm just going to go ahead and get high as fuck and OD on this kind of stuff, and you guys just take off down the river. And Kermit was like, yeah, Mom's going to be pretty pissed if I let that happen, so that's not going to be an option. So give me the morphine back. <laughs> Even then, I'm sure I was like, hey, Gringo went crazy. You guys are going to have to carry him. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't leave this guy. That's the one thing they said was don't come home without that guy. Yeah. <laughs> this guy first, his son second. <laughs> All the other white people aren't really your priority. Yeah, they're collateral damage. But, I mean, he, he, they end up making it. Yeah. They survive. They end up making it. When he gets back, and I don't know, when I say they make it back, that also means they have to come out, then get to some place mm-hmm. that has civilization, then find out where that place is, and then get back to wherever they were starting from or wherever. Or you have to return the same way that you came. I don't think they did that. You don't think so? No. To go up 
up that entire, it was a 625 mile. You couldn't do that. You couldn't go back up 625 miles at that point. Hmm. Um, One of the cool things that came out of this was the relationship that Teddy fostered with Rodone. And they said that when they would break for camp at night after traveling, they would sit around the uh, campfire and they would tell stories. And I guess it was something like uh, Rodon didn't speak English, but mm-hmm. he spoke French. And Teddy didn't speak Portuguese, but he spoke uh, French. Mm-hmm. So they communicated, but they weren't very good at it. So there was a little bit that was lost in communication and translation. But they said that Teddy would just hold court and he would tell all these Old West stories to all these Native Americans that were down there in Rodon and just dazzle them all the time. So he would tell them in French. Rodon would then tell them to everybody else in uh, Portuguese. Yeah. And you have to think that there was probably a couple times when Teddy was like, yeah, so I was out on the plains and I shot at these Indians. And they're like, what are Indians? They're like, oh, um, well, they they look like you guys, but they're up north, so I don't think they're related to you. They're like, oh, but you're nice to them? You're friends with them? He's like, nah. And then I lived in a big white house, and everybody <laughs> was really nice to me. It would be tough to explain, like, we kind of torture your people up north. I'm going to tell you right now, cool, for the longest guys. time with him running that fever and everything, they said he was fucking delirious. They probably got some fucking wild oh, stories yeah. when he was delirious, Teddy. He's like, all right, everybody, sit down. I'm going to tell you about something. Well, they said that for the most part, all these stories they believed because they were out on the trails with him traveling and they saw just how gung-ho and crazy he mm-hmm. was. So any of these stories that he told them, they're going to be like, yeah, it, it makes sense. I just saw that guy jump over some rapids. Wasn't too gung-ho after the injury. So when he ends up getting back. <laughs> oh, Father Zom. Okay, we, please, we gotta, yes, for the yes. love of God, finish his Father John thing. Okay. All right. Long build up. Uh, they end up coming to a fork in the river. And it kind of comes to a turning point where they have to explore this other fork that they think they know what it is already. I think it was the original river that they were coming to uh, travel down. Mm -hmm. And so they had to get specimens and everything off that river. He sends a guy that had come with him um, from North America who had led a failed trip to Antarctica. And so this guy was coming back to be like, "Uh, this is my redemption story. I'm going to set all this stuff up. He set most of the stuff that they needed up and he did it wrong. So he got sent down the other side of the river. Uh, as they were still trekking down the new part, Father John was with them, and they're like, we got to make some cuts. There's too many people here. We don't have enough to support. All the pack animals are sick. This is becoming an issue. Um, Daddy's fucking dying. Father John raises his hand. He's like, I have an issue as well. Um, I'm very tired. I don't like walking. You guys don't make my dinner the best. I'm going to need you guys to construct two long poles and put a chair on it that I will sit in. And then these Indians will then carry me because that's what Indians purposes are is to carry white men around. As soon as Teddy heard it, Teddy's like, Rodon, do you need translation? Rodon's like, no, I think I got what he said. And he's like, okay, you're out of here. Get out of here. Father John, this was your trip to come down here. And because father John was just so just a terrible person that went down to South America for this voyage and then didn't want to go hang out with the Native Americans that were their guides that were keeping them alive, that he wanted him to be carried on a chariot around. Finally, Teddy had just had enough of his shit, and he's like, you're going home. You're out of here. We're getting your ass out of here. How does he do that? Just send a, one guy with him? Did well, Father he, John die? He sent, them back, or he sent him back down the river with the other guy. 
Oh, okay. So that was where the split happened. And instead of Father John continuing on this voyage, Teddy's like, I, I don't like Native Americans just as much as you do. You're just being mean to their faces. Hey, you're not going to tire these guys out because good chance is they're going to have to carry me out of here. <laughs> yeah. I don't want them tired when they have to. I like the throne idea. The rest of it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Well, once they end up getting back to civilization or whatever, it was like the complete opposite of when he came back from the Badlands where he was, you know, gained weight, was bigger. He lost 50 pounds. That's so much weight to lose that fast. Yeah. And they said when he went down there, he wasn't in the best condition. So, I mean, but even losing fucking 50 pounds. And it's not like, hey, you know, how long did it take you to lose 50 pounds? Oh, it took me two years. Oh, good for you. This is like within the course of like months mm-hmm. losing 50 pounds. A, not a healthy way to do it. No. I'm it, sure the malaria throw up and diarrhea probably cleaned, cleaned out quite a bit of weight. Probably. Well, he ends up getting back to, I'm not sure if he gets back to someplace in South America or Brazil. Um, I know he ends up returning in May 1914. In June, Franz Ferdinand is killed. Pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close in time. And I say that to say, as soon as like Teddy leaves, and when he comes back, fucking war is popping off. And he's got to come back and just be like, oh shit. It's go time for Teddy again. Get to do it a second time. Yeah. Do you, I just see him pale, just walking in and being like, there's a war. Assemble the Rough Riders. Get on the horn. Get all the Rough Riders back. Well, uh, half of them are dead, man. Yeah. We'll call everybody that's still alive. It's like an Expendables movie. <laughs> yeah. They just keep getting fucking older. Well, he still had a voice in, you know, in public and kind of on the political stage and everything. Like, people still listen to him. And so when he came back, he was arguing because the war, you know, started popping off. Apparently, I didn't know this, but Germany established submarine warfare very early. Yeah. I thought for some reason that might have been just a, like an established World War II thing, but no. So basically, they're running unrestricted warfare, submarine warfare, which basically means they're just indiscriminately sinking ships. And so Roosevelt's a huge, you know, proponent, like, be like, you guys got to, like, give them harsher penalties and stuff. I don't know how during a war that works. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to, like, be more at war? How are you going to punish them when they're already at war? Like, That's we're going to send a point. A... Huh? That's a good point. What do yeah. you, what's the escalation? I, I think it's just, you're just saying, hey, you should you know, punish these guys for this. And it just sounds good. They're like, yeah, you should punish those guys. You could, I guess, After go to the war, war with resources. After the war, if you lose, it's going to be, yeah. worse. Okay. I, I don't fucking know. Um, I, I know that it probably sounds good. Well, on March 19th, he's given permission to raise four divisions of the new Rough Riders. Was this before or after the Lusitania? I believe it was after the Lusitania. Yeah, it had to have been because right after the Lusitania, isn't that when they declared war? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the story of the Lusitania is basically it was a British like luxury liner. And basically the Germans came out and were like, we know you're shipping guns over there and you're transporting guns on these ships. So just so everyone knows, they took out an ad in like the New York Post and were like, just so you know, the Lusitania is not a safe ship. If we find it, it's going to be sunk. Well, 
bunch of Americans still got on it. It was a small amount. It was like 112 out of like the 2,000 ships passengers. Still a lot of people. I know, but like to be like they warned them, they still did it. At war. Yeah. So it ends up getting sunk, and then that's the essentially the kind of the moment that the United States enters into the war. Well, Woodrow Wilson is like, Teddy, yeah, you can assemble the new Rough Riders, but you can't go. And he's like, what the fuck do you mean? That's the only reason I'm assembling. Like, he's more than 55 years old at this point. He's like, what do you mean I can't go? But there's no Rough Riders without Teddy Roosevelt. According to Teddy's book that he wrote after the Spanish American <laughs> War, you are accurate. Um, so what do you do? Wilson tells you you can't go. You write a book bashing the shit out of Wilson. You know what else you do? What do you do? You threaten to go up to Canada and go over uh, in the name of Canada. Did he do that? Yep. I did not know that. And then you also threatened to, I believe it was, go over to France with your troops and join the French Foreign Legion or whatever it is to go. Oh, you just, oh, so basically you're training a private military outfit. Yeah, you're a a soldier of fortune, so to speak. A team type shit. Uh Okay, there we go. Well, what ends up happening is basically also, I'm guessing Teddy's wife is like, no, you're not fucking going. And then his kids are like, yeah, dad, the fuck are you doing here? You well, shit your pants at the family reunion. What do you think you're yeah, going to do, do you over there? What do you fucking do when you're out in the fucking <laughs> wilds of France? Um, basically, though, the sons take up the torch and they're like, this is obviously really important. This is part of the family lineage and everything. We know how much dad is, you know, this has got to be something that they know that it was their grandfather uh, having heard it from Teddy. So all four of them end up serving in World War One. Three of them end up surviving. Um the one that ends up not surviving is Quentin, who is the favorite. The what baby. Is, what was his nickname? Quint, Quintikins? Or Quint, Quintikins, yeah. Was it Quintikins? And he was actually a pilot, which is crazy because you're fighting in like dogfights and biplanes and stuff. Wasn't even, didn't even have good eyesight. So he memorized the eye chart so he could pass <laughs> it and had like a bad back. Yeah. He's like, I'm still flying these planes. And had reported back that he'd won like a fight against like a, a German airplane, everything like that. Fucking Teddy's reading the news and everything like that, being like, fuck yeah, Quinny. And then it turns out that at the age of 20, he ends up getting shot down, um, I think, behind German lines in France. Yeah. Did you hear what they did when they found out it was Roosevelt's kid? Yeah, they gave him a full military funeral, didn't they? Yeah. That's not what, I mean, technically you are at war with America, but just to like, that's a... There is some type of like, in those types of wars, there was some type of like decorum. Yeah, because it was still honor. from the time of like best deal gentle, day, gentlemen. Yeah, gentlemen's tactics and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's just something like they found out that he was Teddy Roosevelt's kid, and so they're like, yeah, we'll give you a full full military funeral over on our side. What do you think the emotion could be for Teddy when he hears Quentin tell him that he shot down that German in that dogfight? He's like, ah, oh, the ultimate prey, humans. I've always wanted to try it. But there's like a mix of feeling, too, if you think about it, between like, are you so scared that your son was in a dog fight? No. It, you think no. it's just pride? I, I, I think, Teddy, that's the only thing that he would focus on is the, the accomplishment of what he did. And it was just a complete like, fuck yeah. And then he got the other telegram. He's like, fuck no. 
They said he never recovered from that. Was like the the loss that he really never recovered from. It was his favorite kid. Yeah, that's it's a rough way to go. Uh, you want to hear something crazy as well? Uh, Theodore the third, which one of the f- three kids? T three. T three. The oldest. Yeah, fifty seven years old. We discussed this. Remember, he landed leading troops at Normandy, on Utah Beach. Do you remember us talking about that during yeah. the D Day episode? Yep. Yeah, man. I completely forgot about that. So we had uh, nothing for the Roosevelts in the Civil War. We got Teddy in the Spanish-American War. We have um, Quentin, uh, actually all four of them in World War I, mm-hmm. and then T3 in World War II. Yeah. Um, kind of after World War One. Uh, was over with. Uh, Teddy was a big proponent, essentially, for the League of Nations and kind of had this thought, and I think it was also kind of back from when he was building up the Navy and everything, is that he felt that the responsibility of the strongest nations were to be able to essentially also protect other nations and everything. And as far as, like, the League of Nations went, he was arguing for some, like, strict-ass stuff. Like, if any of these countries go to war against, like, this country, any country in the League of Nations, everyone has to commit their full military power. Because, like, when you think about when we talked about Korea and it's the United Nations, it was just a small portion of, like, countries chipping in a couple thousand guys and stuff like that. Yeah. But, like, think of how much a deterrent that that would be is to know that, like, there's no fucking around. It's not going to be a soft response if you go to war with this country and other countries are like, yeah, you guys just hashed it out. It's like, fuck, we got to commit the full. That's that's a huge deterrent, especially at that time. Um, some of his ideas didn't get accepted. That was one of them. They didn't really want to be that harsh about it, I guess. But Well, um, then we end up getting the UN. Yeah. So we get kind of a modern adaption of this League of Nations idea. That, it's the precursor because the League of Nations was established yeah, after World War One, But it wasn't. It didn't same. do fucking much, did it? No, no. Didn't do much preventing that. That's pesky Second World War. Toothless organization. Well, January 5th, 1919. We've come to the end of the road. What to a long... the end of the road. Such a long road. Uh, a full 60 years of life. A I... crazy yeah. fucking 60 years. I like that he kept the family home in Oyster Bay, New York. Oyster Bay. I think that's what you were talking about earlier. There was Oyster Bay, and Roosevelt's. The, and in the Park Avenue or whatever. Yeah. So we, this is the family complex that he comes back to. That's pretty cool to keep his roots, especially when you think, I guess maybe I say that because I didn't think of it from like the rich standpoint mm-hmm. and the fact that he owned, he, I guess he didn't have a shitload of money Man, towards the end. Congrats to that guy for, you know, being in those mansions. Yeah. But he, he had that. I'm sure he had, well, he had the ranch too in the Dakotas. I guess he wasn't paying for housing when he was in the white house. I'm not sure if he, he might've sold that. He, he did sell the ranch. Mm. But just all the land that he had owned, he still was able to keep this Oyster Bay house, but he had yeah. a shitload of money, so it was probably already paid for. That's the thing, is it's an entire lineage. This house probably passed from Roosevelt to Roosevelt to Roosevelt. It was probably just within the family that someone always lived there. Um, last thing he said was to his like servant, James. Last words was he was going, he was having some breathing problems earlier in the day. <laughs> And so he was given, I can't remember, I think he might have been given a little bit of morphine. 
And basically, last words that he spoke were, put that light out, James. Or put out that light, James. And then James left the room. I think it was around like 4 o'clock, 4.15. They said that uh, passed in his sleep. Had a blood clot that traveled to his lungs, correct? Yeah, blood clot dislodged and traveled to his lungs. I don't know. When I hear that and I hear about the just terrible asthma that he had, I wonder if they could have been related if the asthma finally caught up to him. No, it, it was um, as a result. He had bouts of malaria. It oh, kept that's up right. And he was huh? fighting. They said he never recovered from those injuries and the infection fully. That's why, like, when you're talking about the World War One stuff, and they didn't want him to fight. It's like, dude, like, you did not recover up to this point. That's why I think, like, looking at that, that had to be... To have him arguing with someone about that and them just looking at him and being like, you are in no condition to do this shit. I don't think he ever realized it, though. No, no, no. He never realized it himself, but everyone else was looking at him and be like, nah, man. Yeah, there's there's nothing left for you to do. You've done plenty. I was going to say, no shit. Like, you fucking rest, <laughs> yeah. man. But um, Archibald uh, telegraphs his brothers, the old lion is dead. Pretty soon after they had found out about uh, Quentin, too. Yeah. So not not a short period of time between losing your youngest brother and then your father. Mm-hmm. And it's... About, what, six months? Yeah. Yeah. Would have been right around there. That's what I'm saying. Like, the pain of that, the heartache, the stress of that on an already just decimated fucking body that's also battling fucking malaria and, like... The one of my favorite quotes was I don't know who said it. It might have been the VP, but he basically said death had to take him sleeping, because if he would have been awake, there would have been a fight. To have someone fucking say that about you, yeah, that's a a pretty big honor. To think that that's like it sounds silly and funny. But after learning everything about Roosevelt, it's almost like you can't fight a blood clot, but he probably would have tried something. <laughs> like he, he, When they were diagnosing, like, it sounds like he got some blood clots. He's like, how do I fight them? Yeah. That was like, probably well, his... we have this medicine. No, no, no. You misunderstand me. How do I fight them? <laughs> and this, I'm not really understanding your question, Mr. Roosevelt. Not the medicine. Me. <laughs> yes. Um, buried on a hillside overlooking his beloved Oyster Bay. And, I mean, he, I think he, of course, there's still Roosevelt's around today and everything because it was such a large family. Um, so, so many things that you can track back to, to Teddy. One of the things that I, I mean, unfortunately, I did not know. I could have told you maybe two out of the presidents that were on Mount Rushmore, but also to be up there with Washington. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Roosevelt, Washington, Lincoln... Jefferson? No. No. Jefferson. Is it Jefferson? God, I want to say Jefferson. I'm not sure, though. Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Jefferson. It is. Oh, here we go. So, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah? All right. I feel good about that. Just to be... That's that's fucking crazy. Like, to be up there with, okay, the first president, Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson, third president? Maybe. Abraham Lincoln, and then Teddy Roosevelt. Like, he gets to be up there also. It's funny because he's like the most hidden face that kind of goes back, but then he's also the closest to Lincoln. So there's something kind of poetic about that. Someone that, like, was 
used him as such a kind of a like a north star and everything to to have that but yeah man like not just a life but like many lives like i said he's rich political force gump yeah and, he's and, warist gump because he likes to go to war <laughs> you can tell it, it gets late in the night and late on these podcasts when i start making those, those puns it was well thought out though the thing that i kind of went back and forth with just studying Teddy was I don't know how far I would have gotten into it just looking at a few of the things but the Bull Moose party doesn't sound like it would have been the worst party in the world no it was a really progressive party yeah and I think had we had seen a third party breakthrough when the Bull Moose party happened I feel like it would be a different United States today because mm-hmm. there would be that chance. And once you gain the foothold of the presidency, then you start filling seats and you, you basically, we, we don't have this two party system. That's that we the have biggest today. complaint, man, is we don't have it, Our selection is so fucking limited that you're just like, what are the chances out of two? You're going to have a good option. You'll have a better or a worse option, yeah. but that's may not be fucking saying something. If it's, they're just both like, well, he's on just this side of better. And this guy's just on this side of worse. Yeah. If, if there could be, and of course it's been tried and everything like that, but something that if it would have caught kind of caught fire or, had, you know, on the off chance, what if he would have, you know, lived another 10 years and been able to be an establisher of that party and kind of like nurture that thing. It could have, I'm not saying he didn't do enough in his life. Cause like, goddamn, Yeah. But it's just, you know, a guy like this who got so much fucking done and was never going to stop. I don't know if he was long for this world. I think he lived a lot longer than he should have. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, a lot longer. Just with everything that he did, he kind of, he faced mourning death and loss with facing literal death. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like, exactly. He, he kind of fought fire with fire, and there were so many chances so many things that could have happened along the way, just like you were talking about with the robbery story. Had he not stuck up on that guy, that guy would have turned around and shot him. And that would have been the end of Roosevelt. We would have never had Roosevelt at a very important time in our country. He he never stopped like taking a risk. Remember he, he went blind in one eye during a boxing match at the white house, right? He got punched <laughs> like by a sparring guy in the side of the head and he went blind in one eye. And this was prior to him wanting to go to fucking world war one. He also used to make members of the cabinet strip down naked and skinny dip in the Potomac River. Did he really? In in DC. Yeah. He would go for swims. Apparently he loved tennis. And he actually had so many people in the cabinet playing tennis that he just called it his tennis cabinet because everybody was out there on the tennis courts. That was one of the things that he did to stay in shape. And it's I think it was probably mostly a rich person sport at that point. Yeah. But he just always had to be moving. Um, during the Russo-Japanese um, peace treaty discussion, mm-hmm. he brought them into a room where they actually ate a meal standing up because he didn't want the argument over like how many people were seated on the Russo side mm-hmm. versus the Japanese side or anything like that. So he wanted to try to level the playing field to make them feel like equals at all times. It's just little shit like that, that he does to keep thinking and to keep moving mm-hmm. that make him such just a crazy individual. It's why we know so much about him. It's yeah. Why we have so much information on him. 
Yeah, there's a lot of points in people's lives that are just kind of dead and boring, and there's not a whole lot of information about them. Very famous people that did a lot of stuff. There's some down years. Mm-hmm. Daddy didn't have any down years. His down years were when he died. <laughs> that that was pretty much it. His literal down year. Yep. All right, man. You got anything else? No. I, I hope everybody likes it. I hope that everybody enjoys it as much as we did doing the research. The old lion. Yep. All right, guys. Well, thanks again for joining us on this episode. Remember, rate, review, subscribe, give us feedback, like us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll see you next week for another fun-filled adventure of Historically High. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically H I. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.